Hello and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. Join pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, as he continues the study through the Old Testament book of Judges. This is part two of a three-part study of Judges, chapter two. You have a few moments, so why don't you grab your Bibles and follow along. Please turn to Judges, chapter two. Verses 4 and 5, And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spoke these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. So upon hearing this rebuke, this chastening by the angel of the Lord, the people, the, the nation of Israel wept, and they made sacrifices. But as we read on, you'll note that they did nothing different. They wept, they had this emotional experience, they made sacrifices, they praised the Lord, but they did not change their behavior. They didn't alter their course. There's no indication whatsoever of repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. I mean, how many people have we seen in our lifetimes that have been caught doing things that just wept big old crocodile tears. They were so sorry they got caught. <laughs> they weren't sorry for their actions. They were simply sorry that now they've got to pay the price for their actions. And that's worldly sorrow. That's the sorrow that doesn't change anything. But godly sorrow is born from conviction. The Holy Spirit will at times come into our life and guide us. When we sin as a believer in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's living in us, the Holy Spirit will convict. He will reveal that sin and convict us. And, and there's times, I'll be honest with you, I've been there, where I've done or said something, and it just breaks my heart. I mean, I just can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. And it's like grieve over my sin. God, help me to be better. But that leads to repentance, genuine repentance before the Lord, and that leads to restoration. That's what God wants. He wants the restoration that comes from that. But it's born in humility. It's born in submitting our hearts and our lives to the Lord. Sadly, what we see in this chapter is the sorrow of the world. Bokim means the place of weeping, and it is. It's a place of weeping and mourning, and sin always leads to weeping and mourning. Later in their history, the prophet Joel would tell them in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and of great kindness, and repents him of evil. The prophet's saying, don't go with the outward expression. Back in those days, in Bible days, when people were grieved by something, they would oftentimes tear their cloak or their robe as a sign of grief, and they would throw dirt up in the air on their head or whatever. And that was an external manifestation or expression of grief. And they would just really get into it. But there were times, too, they would do that, and they would sit down and have dinner. And God's saying, don't give me an outward show. Don't be like a hypocrite and just make a big scene. Change your heart. Tear your heart, grieve in your heart over your sin, over the circumstances. Because God's looking to the heart. He doesn't look to the external. Men look to the external, but God always examines the heart. God isn't interested in the outward expression, because so often it's superficial. He's much more interested 
in that inward change. And that's why the psalmist tells us in Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for heart change. Then as we move on now to verse 6, we read, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man into his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the mountain of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gaash. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel." So basically, as long as Joshua and his contemporaries were around, the children of Israel, basically those who had seen all the great works of the Lord, they followed the Lord. But as soon as they were gone, then this newer generation just kind of went and did their own thing. They went astray. And it says that this new generation rose up that, quote-unquote, did not know the Lord. Now, to me, this is an amazing statement, nor the works that he had done. It doesn't say that they didn't know about God. It says that they didn't know God. There's a big difference there. I mean, this generation didn't know the Lord. They knew all about God. They probably knew a lot of the stories. I mean, the nation that's the apple of his eye and and this chosen people and all these different kinds of things. And it's like people that come to church and they know about God. But do we know God? There's a huge difference there. And in Hebrew, the word they didn't know the Lord, it's the word yada, Y-A-D-A. And, you know, you hear that phrase over there and talk, yada, 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 I know, I know, I know. And it's like, yeah, and oftentimes, I know, I know, I know, but they really don't know. In the New Testament, there's a different word that's used for know, and it's the word gnosko. And it's used in Philippians 3.10 as an example. It says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The word gnosko, it means to know personally. It means to know experientially. It means to know intimately, and the example that's often used is that a husband and a wife know each other intimately. And it's different. There's another Greek word that's used in the New Testament, oedis, and it means to know, but it means to know by revelation. It's like you know by reading a book. You can read a book and learn how to wire your house or how to rebuild an engine or something like that, but it's not experiential knowledge. You can read books all day long about how to build a house, But until you get out a hammer and nails and some two-by-fours and stuff, you don't know how to build a house. And I've done that. I've tried to read stuff like, okay, I can fix this or do that by reading the book. It's not until I get the tools out and begin playing with it with my own hands that I actually know how to do that. And that's what's being talked about here. The Lord Jesus wants us to know him, to have a personal relationship with him that's based on experience, that's based on firsthand knowledge and intimacy with him. To know about God is no big deal. The demons know about God. They know that God is real, yet they don't submit their lives to him. And that's what the Lord is looking for in us. And that's what the problem is here with the children of Israel. They know about God, but it's like they go to synagogue, but it's like playing video games the whole time or whatever. Like, oh, whatever, you know. They don't know him personally, and that's where things are lacking. And this is directly attributable to the lack of instruction and proper parenting on a national scale with the nation of Israel. They were told back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he said, And these words which I command you this day shall be in your heart, 
and you shall teach them diligently unto your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the wayside, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, that the word of God and the attributes of God and who God is will be the subject of conversation all day long when you're with your kids, when you're walking along the wayside, when you're having dinner, that we're reading the word of God together. We're talking about the great works that he's done. We're testifying to his glory. We're instructing our kids about the character of God and the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God. And it's the constant source. It's the focus of our lives. But you know what? If our kids only hear about God for an hour and a half on Sunday... And then the rest of our week, the rest of our life is all about living in the world and doing the things of the world and, and functioning and work and school and whatever else. They won't know or care about God. And that's exactly what happened with the children of Israel. They compartmentalize things to the point where like, hey, you know, I can squeeze that out. I've got to do something else on Sunday or Saturday or whatever the day was. And so you see this lack of parenting in a certain sense. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 22, verse 6, he says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. When it becomes ingrained in a child, when it becomes a part of their life and a part of their breathing, their existence, Christianity isn't a religion. Christianity is a relationship. And we want to bring our kids into that relationship. Christianity isn't even, trying to put it in other terms, Christianity isn't a thing. It's who we are. It's what we are. I remember, and I was guilty of this, I remember when I first got saved and and then eventually a little bit later on when I first got kind of hooked into God's Word, and I got so excited about God's Word, and I began to study on my own. And when that happened, I began, basically, I, I get off work uh, two or three in the morning, and I'd come home, get a few hours sleep, and I'd wake up, and I would go lock myself in the garage, and I'd study for three or four or five hours at a time sometimes. And I'd put a sign on, on the door, basically, do not disturb. And my kids knew, leave me alone. My wife knew that this is my time with God. And, and I spent months and months studying. And after several months of doing that, the Lord kind of convicted me. He goes, hey, you're supposed to bring those guys along with you. You're supposed to make their part of this too. Because I was very selfish. I was just focused on me and my relationship with God. And maybe I needed that season, but God corrected me. And then <laughs> then when I go, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll do what you said. Then I sat my wife and my kids down. We're going to have a Bible study. And oh, man, my kids hated it. My wife hated it. I started to hate it too because they hated it really bothered me. <laughs> like, no, 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 we're going to be spiritual. I'm going to teach you the Word of God. And they're going to go, okay. <laughs> and because I didn't know anything, I was just trying to find my way through this, you know. And it went from kind of trying to pound it in them <laughs> and teach them every little thing that I thought I learned to eventually relax a little bit and finding a different way to communicate and all that kind of stuff. And I was blessed that eventually we found the balance. But the bottom line is, is that dad, mom, parents, we have a responsibility not just to tell our kids what to do, but to live it in front of them and to see that it's our life. It's not just you know what we do on Sundays for an hour and a half. And so they were called, as we are called, to instruct our children that our children would know, gnosko by experience, by personal relationship, know the Lord. I think of all the things that we could do as parents, if we don't seek to accomplish that task, we can't control everything. You know, A child has to be willing. There's all kinds of dynamics involved, I know. But if we're not in our hearts seeking to do that, then we fail as parents. Because the Bible tells us in 3 John, there's no greater joy to know that our children walk in the truth. And that's our goal, that our children would walk in the truth, that we'd be with them forever in heaven. Sadly, as we read this, it is a sad indicator of the future. Because as God works in a generation, it's really an interesting thing if you examine revivals. Most of the revivals that you'll see, they impact one generation. 
one generation of people, they get on fire for the Lord, they do all kinds of stuff, they change their lives, but the next generation, their children, most of the time, for the most part, do not partake in that. They don't walk in those ways. It doesn't last through the generations. And again, that's a failure on our part. In verse 11 it says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baalim. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord, and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And so they did evil by serving the other gods, and they did so, it says there, in the sight of God. What do we do? What do we think? What do we engage in that is not in the sight of God? Our God is all-knowing. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Our God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at one time. We are never alone. And he sees all things. You know, so often we think that if we can sneak around the back of the house or go to the garage or you know, go to the top of a mountain all by yourself or the valley or whatever, I'm just by myself. If you've got Jesus Christ in your heart, <laughs> you're never by yourself. And it cuts both ways, I might add. You're never lonely, but you're never alone. And don't think that God is watching us with the eyes of a police officer waiting for you to make a mistake so that he can enforce the law. That's not how God is watching us. God is watching over us as a loving father that tenderly looks upon his children with such favor and with such grace and just like, wow, that's my son, that's my daughter. Oh, yeah. And then maybe the question, well, why are they doing that? He's not looking to hammer us. He's looking upon us because he loves us. And we're in his gaze. And that's a great place to be. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I like that because it keeps me accountable. There are times when I'm tempted, just like everybody else is, to do the wrong thing. But you know what? When I see a person step up in front or a brother or sister from church or my wife or my kids... That helps me to make a better, maybe even make a different decision to do the things the way God wants it done. But if I live with the consciousness that God is with me constantly, that he's watching me, that he's in my presence even, then I would behave differently. I know for a fact at times that my kids behave differently in my presence than out of my presence. I know there are certain things they'll do when I'm not there that they probably wouldn't do if I was there. And I can't really knock them for it because there's things I would do out of their presence that I wouldn't do if I knew they were watching me. You know, it works both ways. It's pretty cool in some ways. But we should live our lives as though the Lord really is there. It's interesting they entered into the idolatry and the pagan worship of the people around them, which is just the result of disobedience. And in verse 13, there's two different pagan gods that are mentioned here that are still applicable to our lives today. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal. This is crazy. I mean, the pagan god Baal, back in those days, initially started out as the rain god or the god of weather. In an agrarian culture where you're growing crops and products and stuff, you're dependent, you're completely dependent upon the Lord for rainfall. They didn't have wells that could pump water up and and irrigation, all that kind of stuff we've got now. They were completely dependent on the weather. And so they began to worship the god Baal, who was the god of thunder, the god of lightning, the god of rain, the god of storms. But because they didn't understand that stuff, he eventually became the god of intellect. If they were confused about a subject or they didn't know what to do, they lacked understanding, then Baal, quote-unquote, 
had the answers for them. And so he became the God of intellect. You know, he gave the explanation for all the things he didn't understand. Then the, the goddess, if you will, the pagan goddess Ashtaroth, and she's known in different places by different names. In Babylon, uh, she was the goddess Ishtar. In the Grecian culture, she was known as Artemis or Diana. In pagan Rome, she was known as Easter. I think where we get our Easter holiday. It's a paganized blend of Christianity and paganism. Easter or Ashtaroth, the goddess of fertility, uh, whose sign or symbols were the rabbit and the egg. Have you ever wondered why? I mean, I grew up as a Roman Catholic doing all that stuff, and every Easter, I look forward to Easter. I look forward to the Easter egg hunt and all that kind of stuff. But I remember one day sitting back thinking, what do eggs and rabbits have in common? <laughs> you know, I'm not like Farmer John or anything like that, but I figured out that rabbits don't lay eggs. It's like, uh... You know how it is when you're a kid, you think about it for like three-tenths of a second. Well, that's weird, and keep going. <laughs> the candy's good or whatever. But there's a book on our website. It's on a PDF, and I think we've got copies in our library. It's called Two Babylons by Hislop, a guy named Hislop. And he wrote this book that details the blending of paganism and Christianity during the time of Constantine, the early parts of the Roman Catholic Church. And I hate to wreck your Easter. I don't really mind wrecking your Easter, but I hate to wreck your Easter because Easter... If you want to, it's not Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. It's the day that our Lord Jesus rose from the grave. It has nothing to do with rabbits and eggs and this pagan goddess. But anyway, that book will open your eyes if you want to check it out. A lot of interesting things there. Ashtaroth, or Ishtarte, or Artemis, or Diana, is still worshipped to this day. Ashtaroth is the motivation behind Playboy magazine. Ashtaroth is the motivation behind Victoria's Secret. Ashtaroth is the motivation behind most of the secular movies that you'll see today. Can you watch a movie that doesn't have a sex scene in it, or a love scene, or a bedroom scene, or some kind of innuendo about that? Can you listen to a secular song? I remember I, I grew up loving oldies. And when I became a Christian, I was kind of in that middle place of transitioning, if you will, and kind of getting into Christian music, worship music. And then I discovered the differences between worship and secular music. Anyway, as I was in this process, I began to listen to some of the songs. God was giving me discernment. I began to view every part of my life, including the music I listened to, through the lens of God's Word. And when I did that, it was really interesting because a lot of the oldies, the songs that I really thought were pretty innocent, the Beach Boys, that kind of stuff. I mean, I knew the Beatles were evil, but the Beach Boys, I thought they were kind of sanctified. As I began to listen to the lyrics of some of the songs, I was amazed at how many of them were geared towards romance geared towards the guy chasing the girl or the girl chasing the guy or being jealous and bit back and all this kind of stuff. And what it boiled down to, it was the goddess of fertility. And you know, I won't take it any farther. You can figure it out. Madison Avenue knows what sells a product. If it's got sex appeal, it'll sell. What does a beautiful girl holding a can of shaving cream have to do with shaving for a guy? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> it's just that, wow, she's pretty. I'll buy that. And we're right back to the marketing techniques that take advantage of Ashtaroth, the goddess of fertility. Every college campus pays homage to the god Baal. The god of intellect is worshipped by every man who flaunts their intellect and thinks themselves too wise or too sophisticated to bend their knee to the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to bend their knee to the true and the living god. And we are a nation of educated idiots. And I can tell you that from personal experience. I can't tell you how many people I arrested that get them in the car, get them in handcuffs, and they're just yak, 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 yak. And they go, you're an ignorant fool, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, wow, okay. 
And I said, are you an educated man? Yeah, I've got a master's and da, da, da. Really? Man, I wish I would have graduated high school. You know, I'd tease them and stuff. Then they go, you're an idiot. So how, how come how come you're educated wearing handcuffs and I'm an idiot driving a car? Hmm. And I talked to homeless people up in, in Oregon on a ministry thing. This guy's been living in the woods and living under a bridge, and, and he's got a master's degree. And he's the smartest idiot I've ever seen, the most educated fool. And we're a nation of idiots. Because when you don't have a biblical perspective, what perspective do you have? And, and the world is full of all kinds of perspectives. But the, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. And that's what's taking place as they worship these different gods. It's interesting. It may start out as worship, but it ends up in bondage. It ends up in slavery. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. So many people will start off worshiping Ashtoreth as an example. And they become so addicted to pornography, they become a slave to it. So many people are so out to, to fulfill parts of their lives with these different things, and they end up being a slave. And God's Word says, don't be brought into bondage by these things. And that's what's happening to the nation of Israel. They're serving these gods, and they're going to be slaves to these gods. Then in verse 14 it says, And then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of the spoilers that spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said. And the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. The anger of the Lord was hot against them. That's not a good place to be. I mean, I've read the Bible several times now, and if God is personally mad at you, You've provoked him to anger. You can't duck. You can't run. The earth will open up and swallow you. A meteor will come. A flaming meteor will come from outer space and hit you smack dab in the head. God, when he gets mad, things happen. And someone's going to get smoted. Being on the wrong side of that equation is the wrong place to be. If you don't fear God and love God, (laughs) you're on the wrong end of the equation because God will deal with that. Romans 8.31 tells us that if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's so true. If God is on your side, if God is for you, man, nothing can stop you. But if God is against you, who can be for you? And we read this, wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. Ooh, I hate that. I mean, I want God's favor. I need God's favor. You know, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of God and stands in the way of sinners or, or sits in the seat of the scornful. And it goes on, but it cuts around to verse 3 and it says, His leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. When we are obedient to God's word, when we're yielded and submitted to him, God wants to bless us. But you ever have one of those days, one of those bad days where everything you touch breaks, where everything you touch just falls apart and you just wish you hadn't gotten out of bed? Imagine that for like the rest of your life. Imagine that for like extended periods of time. That's what's happening to the children of Israel. And the worst part, they were warned, middle of verse 15, as the Lord had said. God's word is described as a double-edged sword in Hebrews 4.12. It's alive, it's powerful, but it cuts both ways. And when God says in his word, this is going to be a blessing, and it cuts this way. But he says if you're disobedient, the blade will come back the other way. And his word is true, whether it's for good or for evil. God's word is true. And 
they've gotten to that place where they've provoked God. They're in big trouble. And it says here, this is the understatement of the year, and they were greatly distressed. I bet. They were having a bad decade, a bad life, and it's like it's not going to get better until they're yielded to God. Then in verse 16, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. As we go through verses 16 through 19, we have kind of a prologue to the book, uh, describing the cycle of disobedience. And we've talked about this last week. They start off walking with the Lord, then they begin to worship the false gods. Then they're delivered into the hands of their enemies. They cry out to God. God raises up a deliverer, a judge, who turns them back to the Lord for while he lives anyway. And then as soon as that judge dies, then they start doing their own thing again. And they go back into captivity and the whole cycle kind of... And verses 16 through 19 kind of describe that. Verse 16, Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. It's almost like saying, well, in spite of all that, it's a stark contrast to me. In spite of all that, God raises up a judge, a deliverer. My first question is, why would God do that? I mean, they're being bad, they're going to get spanked. Why would God suddenly just raise up a deliverer? And the answer I give you is because God loves them. Because God loves us. Because God doesn't want to see them destroyed. He wants them to have that second chance. And it's all part of God's loving nature. It's part of who he is. It's how he's wired to be. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 103, verse 8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching part two of a three-part in-depth study of Judges chapter two. Please join us again next time for the conclusion as we continue our study through the book of Judges and through the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you are blessed and we'd like to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30. Our Wednesday evening service begins at 7 and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. And if you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to walk with Jesus or want to know how to grow in your faith, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. All our services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you. you may